0: x-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, February the 23rd. It's a great day to subscribe to The Local, great day to share it with a friend. X-ray. Today, back in the day, February 23rd, 1927, President Calvin Coolidge signed legislation creating the predecessor to the FCC, Predecessor is like predecessor when you're in a weird mood. Radio communications in the United States were largely unregulated until the Radio Act of 1912. That mandated licenses for transmitters. Problem is, radio technology is magical. Just transmit something at a frequency, magically go somewhere. With an unlimited data plan of $0 a month. But after an array of legal challenges, this was during the Lochner era, you know, the most conservative Supreme Court in history until maybe today's Supreme Court. A judge ruled that under the 1912 Act, the U.S. could not limit the number of broadcasting licenses issued or assign station frequencies. That meant, in theory, stations could move to new frequencies whenever they want, interrupt other stations' broadcasts. This practice was known as wave jumping. So to limit further court disputes, the government intervened. Eventually, Congress passed the Dill White Bill Sounds like a sandwich which created a five-member commission, the Federal Radio Commission, to rework the licensing process. In 1934, the FRC was abolished, its responsibilities transferred to the new Federal Communications Commission. Today, back in the day, February 23, 1877, Oregon's Electoral College controversy was settled once and for all. Rutherford B. Hayes, Republican candidate for president, had won Oregon's popular vote in the 1876 election. At the time, Oregon had three electors representing the state in the Electoral College. One, John Watts, was also a postmaster. State Democrats pointed to the Constitution that said that electors cannot be individuals elected or appointed as government officials. Then-Governor Lafayette Grover, a Democrat, chose C.A. Cronin to replace Watts. Cronin then cast his vote, for the Democratic candidate, Samuel J. Tilden. The Republican electors contested that vote and the legitimacy of his appointment, the issue was not uncommon for that election and the rest of the states. To solve the problem, Congress established an electoral commission. On February 23, 1877, the Commission ruled that Oregon's votes would go to Hayes. It was the closest. US. election by counted electoral college with the end total being 185 to 184 in favor of Hayes. And that's why we know him as President Rutherford B. Hayes. One idea, not adopted at the time, was just have the candidate who has the most votes in the country become the president. February is Black History Month, and today we honor jazz drummer Mel Brown. Born in Northeast Portland, Brown has described high school as the beginning of his musical career. He attended Portland State University on a music scholarship, began his recording career with jazz man Billy Larkin and the delegates to our knowledge, having nothing to do with the Electoral College. Brown eventually got a contract with Motown Records in Detroit. He recorded drums for groups like the Temptations and the Supremes. He toured with Diana Ross until settling back down in Portland in the 1980s. Brown operated the bookkeeping company, Metropolitan Accounting and Tax by Day, and played jazz at night. He became a member of the Mountain Hood Jazz Festival, was inducted to the Jazz Society of Oregon Hall of Fame in 1999. Known now for his weekly performances of the Jack London Review, Mel Brown is still one of the most respected and active figures in Portland jazz. Today we do have your weekly city council update. We also have an interview with Erica Morehouse, senior attorney with the Environmental Defense Fund, about what's happened with climate change policy in Oregon. Spoiler alert, some really interesting and important rulemaking. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Senator Dallas Hurd was elected chair of the Oregon Republican Party. Last Saturday saw a big overhaul of Republican leadership in Oregon. Senator Hurd beat out three-term Republican Party chair Bill Courier. Also, former Senate Minority Leader Herman Bartschager won a contested race for vice chair of the party. Senator Dennis Linthicum was elected party treasurer. The leadership came during a fraught time for the Oregon Republican Party. Former leaders had gained national attention for promoting the conspiracy theory the Capitol siege was a false flag operation. The new leadership is less clear about their views. For instance, Vice Chair Bart Shiger had this to say, There's a lot of questions about the January 6th Capitol incident. It's going to take a while for the facts to get out. They're starting to come out. I think it's going to be a mixed bag. The future direction of the Oregon Republican Party is uncertain. New Vice Chair Bart Shiger Jr. says he hopes to improve the party's messaging and organization. I suspect it's going to be a mixed bag. In recent years, the party has put resources on two unsuccessful recall campaigns against Governor Kate Brown. Democrats currently control every executive office in the state. They hold supermajorities in the House and the Senate. It means Democrats can pass bills without Republican support. As a last resort, Republicans can walk out of legislative sessions to prevent bills from being passed. Last time they did that? Way back in the day, last full legislative session in protest of major climate change reform. Recently, a major concern for the Oregon Republican Party is opposing COVID-19 restrictions and mandatory mask rules. During a special legislative session in December, the new Republican Party chair Senator Hurd tore off his mask and accused Democrats of a campaign against the people and the children of God. That is indeed a mixed bag.
1: It's time for your daily dose of data. Yesterday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 324 new coronavirus cases. There were no new deaths. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Oregon has had 153,134 COVID cases. The death toll remains at 2,155. Oregon has administered 89% of its current stores of vaccines. Oregonians 70 years and older are now eligible for the COVID vaccine. Vaccinations are being administered at the Convention Center and Portland Airport locally. Only some local pharmacies are booking vaccine appointments, so make sure to call ahead to confirm. Oregon has also worked through its backlog of appointments that were postponed due to the winter storm. The fourth and final group of seniors eligible for the vaccine will be those 65 and older, The vaccine will become available to them on
0: March 1st. Gresham's police chief has been forced to resign. Robin Sells' resignation came in the wake of clashes between her and Deputy City Manager and Director of Police Services, Corey Falls. Sells and Falls both filed complaints against each other in late 2020. Each accused the other of violating the city rules around harassment and discrimination. Third-party investigation was conducted, and on February 9th, investigators published a report that favored city manager Corey Falls. Here's the root of the conflict. Falls, a black man, was hired in 2017 under the title of director of police services. He was supposed to implement new policy to eliminate potential bias in law enforcement. But according to Falls, none of his plans for police reform were implemented and his queries to the police force were ignored. At that point, police chief Sell sent an email to the police force saying the reforms would not be put in place. Falls said the police chief personally disliked him, that his race played a part in that poor treatment. Police Chief Sells disagreed that race played any role in her behavior. She says that it was Falls who treated her unfairly due to her age and gender. She also argued she wasn't given enough time to respond to the investigator's report. In a statement, she said, I am not resigning voluntarily, but as a direct result of the city's choice to release a deeply flawed report without affording me due process. Captain Claudio Grandjean will act as chief of police until a permanent replacement is found. Fun times for new Mayor Travis Stovall.
1: Last Friday, the Portland Police Bureau formed its new Gun Violence Response Team. After much talk, the PPB is implementing a new team to address gun violence. It's called the Enhanced Community Safety Team. But it looks a lot like the Gun Violence Reduction Team. The Gun Violence Reduction Team was disbanded this summer after thousands of Portlanders called on the city to defund the police was a small concession. The city removed just 3% of the police budget, although activists called for 50% or more. Activists instead wanted that money to go to community aid like affordable housing and drug rehabilitation. The Portland Police Bureau's new team comes with a new price tag. The police force wants to expand its budget by $350,000 to finance the ECST. The gun violence reduction team tried to be preventative, which often meant more racial profiling. The Portland Police Bureau says the key difference is that the new team will only be responsive, not preventative. Law enforcement officials say that the goal of the ECST is to target repeat offenders. So less than a year after the city appeared to make progressive policing reforms, the Portland Police Bureau already trying to return to the previous status quo.
0: Absences are on the rise in Portland Public Schools. A chronically absent student misses at least one day of school every two weeks. In 2019, Portland Public Schools reported that about 18 percent of students fell in that category. But in 2021, the number of chronically absent students rose 22 percent. That number is even higher for historically underserved students, particularly Black and Latino kids, those populations have an even higher rate of students missing at least one day of classes every week. Issues causing absences can include lack of reliable technology, reliable child care. Online learning can also be a strain on the mental health of students who rely on schools as a social outlet.
1: Finally, some good news. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival will include virtual and live performances this season. It's been about a year since actors performed in front of a live audience in Ashland. But now the festival season will begin still virtually in March and run all the way until January. It'll include the festival's first ever holiday performance. The show called It's Christmas Carol will be a comedy centered around a theater producer who travels to a not so distant future filled with pandemic zombies. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival is currently streaming three shows, Julius Caesar, Manhattan and Snow in Midsummer. In the fall, live shows will start, including August Wilson's How I Learned What I Learned and Unseen by Mona Mansoor. More titles will be announced soon. And that's Matt, today's, today's Quick, Quick Six, 6 Local, Local Rundown. rundown. X-ray. Next up, we have your weekly update on the Portland City Council.
2: This is your weekly City Council update. This week, Council approved inclusionary housing tax exemptions for the Bridgehead and North Lombard apartment buildings. Now 118 privately owned buildings in Portland host affordable units and the city is on track to exceed its affordable housing goals. One community member did give testimony on the matter to point out that the new affordable units are studio and one bedroom units and there is a need for affordable three or four bedroom units in the city. They said the tax exemption for small units is, quote, bare minimum effort. Following commissioners were presented with plans for the use of levy funds in the Portland Parks and Recreation. Those funds would not become available until November if not for voter approval. Council approved the funding as an emergency ordinance to start planning for the summer 2021 season. This summer, the Parks Bureau is anticipating over 70,000 Portlanders will participate in their programs like swim lessons, art and fitness camps, and nature day camps. Additionally, the city would like to bring on 1,850 seasonal employees compared to the 1,700 that were laid off or never hired last summer. Commissioner Carmen Rubio headed this initiative and also pointed out Parks Bureau goals to promote equity and access to parks and their programs. With a levy fund, the city hopes to hire more BIPOC employees, implement culturally responsive programming, and open parks to underserved areas. There will also be a Parks Levy Oversight Committee to ensure funds are being used in the ways laid out by council. That's it for this week's City Council update. Next week, council will discuss transportation safety ordinances. More information, including agendas and virtual meetings, can be found at PortlandOregon.gov forward slash auditor. We'll hear next from Erica
1: Morehouse, a senior attorney with the Environmental Defense Fund. Erica spoke with Jefferson Smith about Oregon's climate change objectives and the upcoming climate legislation headed to Salem. Here are Erica and Jefferson.
0: Look back last year at Adam Davis's, or excuse me, no, uh, Oregonians Davis uh, series, award winning series on how Oregon had started losing its environmental laurel leaves of progress and not showing the climate leadership, the environmental leadership that might be expected by the people who have supported Democratic elected officials in Oregon for so many years and now Democrats are in control. Well, there is going to be climate legislation coming up in Oregon, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it right now with Erica Morehouse, a senior attorney with Environmental Defense Fund. Erica, hello.
3: Hello. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for being here. Oregon has decided on some long-term goals. What I remember was back in the day, I would I, I would speak to climate groups, environmental groups, and my and my line was something like, you know, every every movement needs a every movement needs a slogan, and you know, what what do we want? We need we want peace. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? We want justice. When do we want it? We want it now. And I was in front of this group, I was like, what do we want? We want 90% reduction of climate emission levels. When do we want it? By 2040 or sometime sooner. So I very much like that as our as our, as our clarion call. But what are our goals now?
3: Uh, great question. So the, the goals which have been adopted by the legislature as well as um, some additional goals that have been set out by the governor in an executive order uh, in March of 2020 are to get at least a 45% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2035, um, and at least an 80% reduction um, in those emissions by 2050. And the at least is very important, because that should absolutely be a floor, and Oregon needs to do as much as possible. Uh, Because as the IPCC tells us, we have about 10 years to really make a difference and turn the tide in terms of the most disastrous effects of climate change. This goal
0: setting started some years ago, yes? And from my understanding, we are not on track to hitting those goals.
3: That's right. And I'll start out with a hopeful note. I work on climate policy across the country, and I think that Oregon still has a very important opportunity to be a leader on climate change. But unfortunately, that, as you know, that is still very much in the potential phase. And so uh, many stakeholders, um, including the Environmental Defense Fund, are working hard actually at the Department of Environmental Quality right now, um, at the direction of the governor, to develop a climate protection plan uh, that can be central to Oregon's strategy to actually getting on track to meet those goals. Um, And this comes after a history of trying to pass the legislation uh, through the Oregon legislature and uh, having Republican members uh, leave their jobs in both 2019 and 2020 to prevent not only climate policy, but really the, the full democratic process in Oregon from, from occurring. And so the focus has shifted to the agency, and, and the governor is providing strong direction to them to develop an ambitious policy that can meet Oregon's goals. But we have to, as stakeholders, as citizens, we have to be really vigilant in making sure that that policy is as strong as it needs to be.
0: The ever-popular rulemaking process. We are now in rulemaking. (laughs) And I'm going to ask about the rulemaking, but I do want to just amplify something I heard you say just to remind that some of why we're dealing with this now or some of what we're up against is related to the Republican walkout in the last legislative session. Yes, that gummed up some of the works.
3: Absolutely. Rulemaking. The the preferred approach was to go through the legislature, but when rulemaking is is the best option, then that's what we need to do.
0: So before, and basically the Environmental Defense Fund, your take is if we're going to get, if the whole of the legislative process is going to be shut down by trying to pass a bill, well, let's use existing legislative authority granted to the governor, and that means you're implementing... uh, legislation already. Explain how that works. How are you able to use a rulemaking process instead of a legislative process?
3: Sure. So the legislators already asked the Department of Environmental Quality, um, which is under the governor's direction, to protect the air of Oregon. So there's a Clean Air Act in Oregon, just like there is at the U.S. federal level, Um, and that provides broad authority to protect Oregon from pollution that harms human health uh, and greenhouse gases are certainly in that category and so that is the authority that um, the department and the rulemaking is using to move forward and um, from climate change
0: you cut out for just a moment i've missed your last sentence or two
3: oh i'm sorry uh so they're going to use the clean air act authority um, which has already been passed in oregon to protect oregonians um, and the broader world from the uh, worst effects of climate change
0: so i remember back in the administrative law class i have some understanding of how this works but that of course was under federal regulations this would be under oregon rules presumably yes yes what is that process like this is now some bureaucrats make a decision and people get to write them letters how does rulemaking work now
3: yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the Department of Environmental Quality has developed a rulemaking advisory committee. So they have about 30 different people, um, a little more than that actually, from many different perspectives who are supposed to be giving them advice. Uh, they also last year did an extensive work technical workshop and town hall process where they tried to get some input from uh both technical stakeholders and the general public on what they should do. Um, and right now, they're doing economic modeling, and they're they're going to be actually putting words on paper and developing some draft rules. And the, the goal would be for the um, Environmental Quality Commission, which actually um, approves rules that the DEQ puts forward, uh, would adopt a rule by the end of December, after more public comment. Uh, and actually put that rule into force um, by 2022.
0: And what so all the, will that, what do you think, or, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You go ahead.
3: Oh, no, that's fine. I was just saying the public p- comment process is, is very important, and I think part of what we want to talk about, because it is um, one of the ways that we can keep the department accountable for doing as much as they need to do.
0: And why does public comment matter? I mean, do they read all these letters? Do they say, "Oh, well, the people who wrote these letters—that's a representative sample of the world." Uh, why does it matter what the comment period turns up?
3: Well, I think it—it it does matter that people have a chance to make their voice heard, um, and part of—I uh, think—the the role of of journalism and what you're doing is to amplify those voices when maybe they're not being heard in the in the way that they should or decisions are being made that aren't consistent with uh, the general well-being of, of Oregonians and um, there are some concerning things that are that are developing in terms of the proposals that the, the department is uh, putting forward but it's nothing is, Locked down now, so it's very much an opportunity to uh, change the direction, um, if that's what's needed.
0: And i by the way, I appreciate very much that you said that's why journalism import- is important, and what you guys are doing. So I, because I, 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 I don't know, I think there's journalism and there's what we're doing, and I think we're doing a good mm-hmm. thing. And I like to yeah. put that so yes. it's, it's an and what we're doing. So the uh, so now they'll they'll not just count noses but rulemaking and uh, submissions public comments rulemaking can unearth issues right it can help make it, it helps build yes. that record and then i mean i uh, you know i put a plug in for sortition for citizen juries essentially for citizen review mm-hmm. panels for some of this stuff so it isn't just the isn't just based on whoever has the time to submit a letter but people who have the time to submit a letter please do i suspect is one of the things you're asking yes how do they do yes. that
3: uh, well, we do um, have a, a link, and uh, we're doing an email campaign right now um, to ask the governor to make sure that um, these, are, these rules are as strong as they need to be. But there's also um, just going to the Department of Environmental Quality's page and looking for the climate protection plan, um, and there will be instructions there on how to submit a comment as well.
0: What is at issue, do you think? What do you think are some of the puts and takes that are going to truly be debated?
3: Well, the North Star for this rulemaking will really be whether they can adopt a policy that is strong enough to get Oregon on track to meet its targets, as we wow. talked about at the beginning. Um, and then it gets pretty into the weeds from there. there we is, like
0: the weeds. The um, weeds are good. <laughs>
3: The, the, as usual, the, the kind of devil is in the details, and this can turn into a, a pretty complex, um, process of developing a policy that can be effective to actually meet these robust targets. But when we take a step back, there are, there are pieces that, uh, sometimes they, it's just hard to understand, um, why you wouldn't <laughs> do things in a way that is, as protective as possible for climate. I'll give you an example. One of the things that we're really focusing on right now um, is the fact that the Department of Environmental Quality has indicated that they don't plan to cover the electricity sector in this climate protection plan that is expected to be central to Oregon achieving its goals. And what's really concerning about that is that there are... Wait, who announced that? The Department of Environmental Quality in the rulemaking process has said that they haven't put anything down on paper yet, but their intention is not to cover the electricity sector. It
0: seems like and electricity means, is really
3: important. <laughs> electricity is very important. It is it is the second largest source of pollution in Oregon after transportation, but it's a very close second. Um, so it is a big portion of Oregon's emissions. And also there are natural gas generating plants that make electricity in the state of Oregon. And there are communities that live next to those plants that are experiencing the pollution, which is not just greenhouse gas pollution, but also local air pollution. And so by missing that opportunity, they would also, the Oregon would also be missing the opportunity to regulate the and actually lower Local pollution that affects people's health every single day.
0: What's the rationale to keep? I mean, it seems to me the motivation is because PGE, Pacific Corps, and Northwest Natural Gas have terrific political power in our state. And I would suspect that's the reason. Feel free to push back if my conspiratorial guessing is off. What is the reason, or at least what is the public rationale for trying to keep electricity out?
3: Yeah. So what, what DQ has said is that they're worried about whether Oregon might just start importing more dirty electricity because they also don't anticipate um, covering the electricity that comes into Oregon that's generated in another state. So they're worried about competition for the generators that actually operate in Oregon. And to us, it makes sense to consider those dynamics, but we think that there are ways to address those concerns in the actual design of the policy to uh, bolster the utilities that might need um, some support to make sure that their customers don't go and just buy dirty electricity from outside of Oregon. We think that can be done within the policy rather than just exempting um, those sources altogether from a program.
0: So you're asking that people write in, you're asking people that they do that asking for the most uh, the the most strongest sure the most strongest uh, protections that there are anything else you want to make sure people understand
3: Um, yes so the the ask would be to have the strongest climate protection plan possible um, that goes above and beyond Oregon's existing targets that it covers all major emitting sectors of the Oregon economy including electricity and um, there there is a huge opportunity for Oregon to be a climate leader here um, even though it's a small state it will have an outsized impact across the U.S. but if Oregon can't do climate action effectively it will also send a detrimental message um, to the U.S. and to the world uh, that a progressive state can't take the action that it needs to on climate change.
0: Well, we want to say thank you so much, Eric Morehouse from the Environmental Defense Fund, for joining us this morning.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: Be well. Thanks to Erica for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.